0: they're
1: everywhere it's just like i mean you could follow one of those like emergency huskies accounts uh or you could follow me
0: hey everyone welcome to writers who don't write this week on the show we have blair braverman who just uh came out with a book called welcome to the goddamn ice cube it's all about her time in uh you know the coldest places on earth racing dog sleds uh a few housekeeping notes we are actually going to put the show on pause for a few months uh but we are returning in early december with some really amazing guests uh we're trying to decide if we're going to go bi-weekly if we're going to stay weekly uh we just want to be able to you know provide you with episodes on a more regular basis and we're trying to figure out the best way to do that so hit us up in the inbox at www.podcast.gmail.com let us know what you think uh You can always stay in touch with us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Uh, subscribe to the newsletter at tinyletter.com slash WWDW podcast, and listen to our entire backlist on iTunes and SoundCloud. So here is Blair. So today on the show, we have Blair Braverman, author of uh, the newly released book, Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube. Uh, Blair, how are you?
1: I'm doing great
0: good it's good to have you thank you so much and you know I know that we've uh you know been in touch off and on for the last few months so it's good to actually you know sit down and have like a really real conversation um yeah Kyle and I just finished the book we loved it and you know we did a pretty big deep dive into everything you've ever done um
1: (laughs) I'm sorry so
0: I'm I'm a big fan of dogs and
2: I like dog sledding is the one probably well one of many blind spots I have in the world of dogs I just it was so interesting to get deeper into this area where dogs are actually a machine as opposed to something to be, uh, loved and cuddled.
1: Whoa, 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 wait, whoa, (laughs) wait. I mean, I think you're halfway right. I think they're a machine and then they're very much loved and cuddled as well.
2: It was seeing them in a new light for me. Um,
1: they're, they're working animals.
2: It's kind of crazy how far you can go with, you know, six or eight or even ten dogs. Are you talking about? Yeah, like, actual I mean, distance? I. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: My my fiance was a tour guide in Alaska this summer, so he came home with like all these factoids that he had to say on his tour about sled dogs. So suddenly we'll be like, uh scooping poop in the dog yard, and he'll be like, "Did you know that Alaskan Huskies uh, migrate farther than any other land animal when they are running the Iditarod or something <laughs> like that?" Like he just sort of spits that out um so i'll you're correct i mean i i can
2: see i didn't (laughs) know this
1: throw some of those at you
2: i didn't know that and it's fascinating because so far my experience is with my parents golden retriever who can barely walk down the stairs without face planting well you
1: know what happens if you pick up a tennis
2: ball (laughs) lots of like seriously there is at least one more face planted
0: there (laughs) and a lot of running i mean, I I,
1: I think because dog sledding is so foreign for people um and like the best parallel i can give someone if they're you know if they've never experienced it if they've never seen a team run is like the energy that your golden retriever has if you pick up a stick or a tennis ball and it's just like nuts and it's totally blissed out and like will never stop. I mean, I grew up with, uh, labs and a golden retriever. And like, if you throw a tennis ball, like you could go forever and the Mm. dog would be like, why are you stopping? Mm. Why are you stopping? (laughs) And, um, it's like that same instinct translated into pulling. Like if you pull out a harness for a Husky, it acts as if, you know, you're holding a tennis ball for a Labrador.
0: And, you know, I do have to say that Kyle called dogs, you know, uh, machines and, um, you know, the dogs that you're working with specifically are, you know, what would be considered like the fine-tuned version of that machine because they're, you know, trained their whole lives for these races. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to get back to that in a second uh, because I don't think a lot of our listeners probably know what the Iditarod is. Um, but, you know, before we get into that, can you tell us how, you know, you became a California born dog sled racer with a book out? <laughs>
1: oh, great uh i grew up in california can i give you a real shorthand yeah please uh i grew up in california and when i was a kid my family lived in norway i like fell in love with norway went back as much as i could um i don't know my parents are like baffled as to why i got into dog sledding and actually last week when my fiance came home from alaska (laughs) He brought this picture book he'd gotten called Kiana's Iditarod, which is about, it doesn't matter what it's about, it's about sled dogs, and there's a little girl who dog sleds out of our kennel named Kiana. So it was a present for her, and it's like this obscure book. And I looked at it, and I realized that I was read that book constantly as a kid, and it made me... Like, think back on all the books I was read as a kid, and they were just all dog sledding books like that was what my mom wanted to read me and then, like, I grew up and forgot about that uh and then my parents act surprised that I somehow had this fantasy about moving to the north they they were just reading you books the because they wanted you dogs. to
0: be you know a reader, they were just you know pouring you into pouring into you whatever they could find, I bet, but I mean that's. Yeah. A, that's amazing. Now,
1: yeah, I mean, yes, and my mom just has a crush on Alaska.
2: <laughs> I was going to say that I don't know, like I don't remember being read any dog sledding books as a child. Like I feel like you would have to search for those.
1: Yeah, but I had a lot of them.
2: Yeah. Right. So I mean, at some point, it's like a conscious effort. So do you blame your mom now? Are you like, mom, you did this? Thank you. But also, how are you surprised?
1: I don't. I don't blame anyone. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think that I like cold. I just found that I um, feel really good when it's cold outside. And also, um, you know, cold is a skill. Being in cold is the skill. So it's a matter of – it's not like I like discomfort. It's just a skill that I have an aptitude for um, uh, that anyone can learn. And I also just love dogs, and I didn't like California – And somehow this became like the vehicle for me to indulge all those things. And uh, then I just kept doing it because I'm very stubborn.
0: And where did the writing aspect come in?
1: Uh, I, gosh, I went to undergrad for environmental law. And then I went straight into an MFA program uh, at at Iowa for nonfiction.
0: Which which is impressive.
1: Yeah. So I just sort of was writing. (laughs) <laughs> the the whole time um writing about non-fiction i wrote so much about the arctic and the north um that i just felt in a way like oh gosh i have to get this out of me or else i'm never going to get to write about anything else um so it was sort of like flushing it out of my system to take on this book project
0: so you you know had all these experiences and and you were just drawn to the idea of actually writing about them. But I mean, there's, there is a difference between doing that and then being so good at it that you get into, you know, one of the most prestigious writing programs in the country. So, you know, I guess like, did you have any, any formal training prior to going to Iowa? Um, or was it just that, you know, you were kind of a natural?
1: I mean, I took workshops in undergrad,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, I mean, I don't know what the answer is to that. Like, oh, yes, I'm just that good. Like, what am I supposed to say?
2: <laughs> well, no, I, I think what Jeff's trying um, I mean, to I mean,
1: I actually, when I was an undergrad, I really undertook a sort of independent project to write very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also uh, dating a guy who was maybe like the other various, very serious writer at my undergrad, and we just <laughs> were like super dorky together. And... Um, I would, I didn't party or anything. I was like kind of afraid of that stuff. And so I would just be up at six in the morning when the library opened and I would like read very diligently and write for several hours. And then I'd do my school day and then I'd like go to the GIS lab because it was empty. Uh, and write there, um, just like, I mean, my teacher, Jenny Boylan, who, uh, is now a friend used to say, or still says like every writer, every person has a hundred pages of bad fiction in them. Um, and so I took that very much to heart and was like, Oh, I just need to, um, write a lot of bad writing and then the writing will be good. Um, so, so that was sort of what I tried to do.
0: I mean, Hey, it worked. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what the other stuff looked like, but this, this book was pretty good. Um, So, you know, and and I I kept on seeing this parallel um, because, you know, writing is kind of famously, um, you an isolated practice. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, you're alone when you're doing it. Even if there are other people around, you're in your own head. Um, And I kind of saw, you know, a comparison, a lot of similarities between that and, you know, you spending all of your time, you know, up in the north and in the Arctic and kind of just, you know, out for days at a time with dogs in the middle of nowhere. Um you know, is that like a conscious decision do you think? Um do you just like being alone?
1: I do like being alone. I mean, I I could make all sorts of cheesy comparisons between like the white tundra and the white page, like both being full <laughs> of possibility or something like I, it's sort of on the tip of my tongue to go as cheesy as I can. Um but I also don't think that's true, so I'm not going to indulge it. Um I, you know, dog sledding is not solitary at all because you are, you know, your mind is as close as possible as you can get to the minds of animals or as close as my mind can get. Um, You're just sort of solitary in the human vein. So there's very little language, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Dog sledding is not about language. It's about feeling. Uh, It's not about planning ahead, it's about reacting to things as they come up, Um, which is sort of the opposite of writing to me. And I think that it's less that they're similar so much as they balance each other out.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that's interesting. And, and, uh, you know, I want to come back to that idea a little bit um, because so many of your stories kind of encompass that, but... uh, you know, probably the first thing, and, and I might be wrong, but the first thing that I knew about you for uh, was your piece on This American Life. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that came about, and 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 also what <laughs> what the piece you know was and is?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a piece about um, after I lived in Norway, I worked on a glacier in Alaska um, for two seasons, and I was living in this tent city with two hundred dogs in a place that was only accessible by helicopter. And uh, there was an occasion Well, I was there when uh, a storm came in and some cruise ship tourists were trapped for two days. And, uh, you know, that whole glacier experience was very much about like a performance of authentic Alaska that didn't actually have any discomfort uh, woven into it. Like a very sort of high end wilderness experience experience. Um, which I'm fascinated by that concept as a whole because wilderness isn't high-end or low-end. I mean, it's uh, often unpleasant and messy. Um, So how do you make that luxurious? And I, you know, the flip side, the personal side, was that I uh, was sort of entangled with another musher there who uh, was sexually violent to me. Uh, and I felt very trapped in that tent city. I mean, I literally was. Uh, so, in some ways, I related to the tourists when when they were trapped. And uh, actually, the way the way that happened was that I was at McDowell Colony, and I happened to sit next to a story scout for this American Life at dinner. Wow. Um. And
0: serendipity.
1: She was looking for stories, and I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm going to hustle and pitch you some stories. And I told her that one, um, and she brought it to This American Life, and they they wanted it. Uh, so it was a really fun process. It was the first time I did radio. Uh, and then someone who was working at This American Life was also an editor at The Atavist. Um, and he said, hey, do you have an extended version of this piece we could put up around the same time? Uh, And as it happened, I'd been sitting on an extended version for four years without publishing it.
0: Well, that's kind of amazing because, um, you know, I I read the piece in The Atavist and listened to the piece on This American Life. And they were two, I don't want to say very different versions, but, um, you know, it was very clear what was missing when you when you put the two together. Uh,
1: They're totally different.
0: yeah. And, and I mean, you know, the, the audio version, the, this American life version is missing, you know, the entire interaction with this, this man that you mentioned, um, this Mm -hmm. other musher. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, like what went into that decision, how much of it was you and how much of it was like the producers?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the events are the same in both stories, but the souls of the pieces are totally different. And You know, when I talked to This American Life, I talked to them about the more complete story, and uh, their instinct was that's not going to work in this format given the number of events already happening. Like, that's just one thread too many. Um, So their decision that I felt really good about was to highlight just the absurdity of the whole situation. Um, And I, you know, I, I think of that as... Oh gosh, I'm gonna say okay. I think of the experience with This American Life, which I would totally love to do again, as like a sausage grinder um, or a sausage maker. Like I put in the story, and then they're just a really efficient machine, and they just sort of like grind it out, and then it comes out this like perfect This American Life sausage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's so, it's just such a like process, and it was amazing to go through it. And they're so good at what they do that it's. A pleasure to step back and and you know watch that happen and help that happen uh but it was a somewhat unusual editorial experience um because there were so many stages involved and uh you know I don't know how much of that was radio which is new to me and how much was um you know that they're very good at uh you know their formulas and uh, at what they do um the atavist piece the longer piece It was very important to me to have that added personal element to the story. I do think they didn't know what they were getting into when they published it. I think that they thought it was going to be like a more absurd version of um, this American life. And, uh, you know, I turned in drafts and we were moving very quickly because it was like a two to three week time span at that point. And uh, they were kind of like, like. Oh, gosh, like, what did we take on? Uh, Just because it's a much more complicated story, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, with legal ramifications, and, uh, you know, we had to sort of cover our backs for all of that. Um, But they ended up, you know, really sort of nurturing it and standing behind it, and uh, it was terrifying. It was the first time I'd talked to my family about that story. It was the first time, you know, I hadn't talked to anyone, and so to come forward with a story of sexual violence in a very public sphere uh, was terrifying. And what was so bizarre was that, okay, so This American Life came out and like three days later, The Us came out and everyone was like, I heard you on the radio, like this must be the best day of your life. And I was just like having panic attacks because I was about to have a story about rape published in a national publication and like terrified to open my email. Um, So there was this very bizarre disconnect um, between like the sort of joyful celebratory uh, This American Life story coming out um, and having that like way more listeners or readers than I'd ever had with any other publication, um, you know, and then having this really viscerally terrifying story uh, follow it immediately after.
0: Now, what was the reaction to that? You know, when you after that piece ran? you know, were were you receiving, you know, these phone calls and emails that were, you know, trying to kind of dig deep?
1: Overwhelmingly. uh, Overwhelmingly, I got very positive responses. That said, those aren't the ones that stick in your mind. Those aren't the ones that get to you. Um, And I got some pretty angry responses from my old coworkers. Uh, There was actually a newspaper that contacted some of my old co-workers to find out if I lied about things. Um, and which I just sort of thought like, oh my gosh, like this is the machine that happens here. Like if you tell a story about <laughs> sexual violence, like they just immediately start discrediting you. Uh, and that story ended up being pulled, but it never came out. But I was obviously, that wasn't like a very pleasant process to go through uh, expecting it to come out, hearing that my friends and people who were, you know, acquaintances, but not friends had been contacted. Um, The most meaningful responses I got privately, they were not made publicly, but a few people, more than a few people reached out to me who had been there and said, that's exactly how it was. Or, I knew what was going on, and I wish I had said something. Um, and those were all sort of private messages to me, as opposed to like mm-hmm. public complaints on Facebook that other people were making at the company. Um, but it was really, really meaningful and validating to get those notes.
0: And did you receive a lot of you know meaningful responses from the this American Life piece as well? Because you mentioned that it was you know kind of. Uh like the the sausage factory, but it's also, um, you know, like the gold standard sausage factory, you know? I oh don't,
1: yeah. You know. Like the world <laughs> champion sausages. Like, I don't mean to say that.
0: No, 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 a, no. And <laughs> we, we all know, we all know what you, what you meant, you know, that it, it, it was a really amazing experience, but it was so clear that it's something they've done a million times. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, streamlined. Sorry.
0: No, it's totally okay. It's just, I'm, I'm always so curious about, um, you know, audience size because, Your atavis piece, you know, as powerful and meaningful, you know, as it was, I'm sure was not nearly as large as the audience of This American Life. Um,
2: I would also have a
1: question. I have two favorite responses to This American Life Mm -hmm. that I got. Um, Actually, just this summer, so a year after it came out, I heard from one of the tourists who had been trapped on the glacier. Really? Yeah. She (laughs) finally heard it. She didn't hear it until, like, her friend mentioned it to her this year. And so she tracked me down and wrote to me and she thought the piece was super exciting. She actually had been mentioned in the piece, (laughs) not by name, but she was like a mom with a baby. And she was like, I was the mom with the baby. (laughs) And um, what really struck me is she said that after they got back to the cruise ship, uh, they were like, they're, I'm going to mess this up somehow, but... Like, they had to tell the story of what had happened, put it on the record somehow, and they were all sort of, like, coerced into using words like fun and adventure, <laughs> even though they had been, like, afraid for their lives. Yeah.
0: So they're, um, they're terrified of losing their lives, and, you know, meanwhile, when they get back, they have to give testimonials about how much fun they had.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was interesting because I always felt like we were part of this performance uh, but then to have them on the inside for those two days, like they, when they went back, they had been, they had become like part of us, like part of the insiders. <laughs> and like suddenly they had to perform too. Um, I also heard from people who said, hey, I, I got stuck on a glacier too. And it turned out to be a totally different event on a totally <laughs> different glacier. Apparently it happens a lot. Yeah. Um I mean, I, has happened I imagine. multiple times. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you mention it, you know, all the time in, in your writing, but it really is, uh, you know, for you, it's an everyday thing, but really this is, you're doing some, you know, pretty extreme things when you're out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and I think, you know, you kind of get lost in that and, and forget that when you're reading, you know, especially your book, um, you know, that at any moment, if if you're not careful, you know, something bad can happen.
1: Yeah. So. Although, I want to say my other favorite response to this yeah, American no, life. Please. Um, I was in, I was walking into a CVS. I was having like a terrible day. Um, and I finally was like, okay, I'm going to go to the drugstore. I'm going to get like Gatorade because I wasn't feeling well. And I'm just going to do it and go home. And uh, as I finally like dragged myself out of the house and walked into the drugstore, there was a yellow lab tied up outside the door. And uh, she just launched herself at me and bit my hand as I walked by. Uh And I've, that was the first intentional dog bite I've ever gotten, despite the like hundreds of dogs I've spent so much time with. Um, And I was just like, I don't even know how to handle this. I I guess I'll just stand here. I just stood next to the dog, but not too close to the dog, um, and waited until someone came out and was like, is this your dog? I just need to make sure that like... She has her rabies shots and stuff. And my, I wasn't injured. It just had drawn blood. And so, so someone came out, and he felt terrible. Um, he was able to, like, call the veterinarian right then and there. So I knew, okay, the dog's been vaccinated. I don't have anything to worry about. And he was saying, like, oh, did she show any sign before she left up and bit you? And I, I said, no, no. Um, no, she she really didn't see anything that I that I noticed, and I'm pretty good at noticing those things because I'm a dog sledder, so I I'm around a lot of dogs, and um, he like freaked out. This was like two weeks after the story came out, and he was like, oh, "You weren't on the radio, were you?" <laughs> and just like freaked out and was like you were on the radio on the glacier oh my gosh I made my wife listen to that like I I said that to my friends and I was like oh my god it was like the first time I've ever encountered someone who had read my work uh who wasn't someone I knew and it was because I was like sick outside a drugstore and his dog had attacked me like it just felt um
0: I mean that's that's
1: somehow perfect.
0: Kind of a crazy coincidence as well. Strange. Well, so so I'm actually kind of curious how the book came about because you uh you know the Adivis piece came from your this American life piece which you know came from your experience and uh you know did somebody hear this this interview or this you know segment on this American life and then say like hey here's a book deal? No, the
1: book was already written at that point. Um, really? And the book deal was two or three years in the works at, at, at that point. I sold, I sold the book, I don't remember what year it was, 2012? Um, I was 24. And then it took about four years to go through writing and uh, research. And uh, then the publication process itself was about a year to do the formatting and um, I mean, whatever magic they do. <laughs> uh, so, so actually, at that point, um, you know, that was already part of that story. Was already in the book. It was already all written.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, in some ways, I knew that that story would hit the world with the book anyway, and it it felt kind of good to send it out early because I was really stressed about it. Um, so that was one less year of worrying. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the starter pack to, you know, seeing what the response would be. Um,
1: Yeah, my agent was kind of annoyed. She was like, this would be such good publicity for your book. Why are you, um, you know, why aren't you waiting a year to come out with this? But I, Which I'm sure she's right, but I just, I wanted to sort of take the opportunity as it came.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's something that um, happens in publishing oftentimes is that You know, you have people that are, uh, you know, they kind of have their own interests at at heart. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is this is a situation where, you know, her interests are in line with yours, Uh, where I mean, it's true. If this story came out, you know, when your book is out, it would have had an enormous impact. But at the same time, you know, who's to say that you didn't get, you know, a thousand pre pre-orders from that one interview or something? Um, Jeff's putting on his book. Uh, publicist hat now just i know case. i love it
1: yeah. i i've been trying to you know read about book publicity but i don't know what, anything about it i'll give but you
0: all, give you all the secrets after that. this interview
1: just just turn this into a totally different podcast
0: well we I, I honestly thought about it at one point you know uh dirty secrets of book pr
2: that I, it actually happens yeah. about once an episode if we're being honest
0: yeah i mean we cut a lot of this um it happens all the time um <laughs> Well, so I, I I'm curious about the structure of the actual book because, um, you know, you don't really have it written at all in a chronological order. Um, I mean, to a, to a point, you do kind of go through, you know, um, your life, but at the same time, um, you know, you have this thread throughout the whole book, which is you and this shop. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just kind of curious why you decided to structure it that way.
1: It's actually in. I mean, when I first conceived of the book, it was totally chronological. And then as soon as I started writing it like that, it was totally boring. Um, I, you know, I sort of went through these experiences for listeners who haven't read it. Um, There's like moving to the Arctic and becoming a dog sledder and, um, you know, dealing with sexual violence and sort of grappling with this very male dominated uh, frontier culture. Um, and also really pushing myself into uh, sort of adventurous experiences or dangerous experiences, uh, to prove to myself that I could find a place there, even though I didn't, uh, you know, have a real way of fitting in. Um, and then I left for quite a while and by quite a while, I mean five years, which is a lot when you're in your early Mm twenties, but you know, not so much for the rest of your life. Um, And then I went back and I ended up in this village shop, uh, this former seal hunting village with 40 people in it, 200 miles above the Arctic Circle. And I spent, uh, you know, on and off for three years just sort of helping out in this shop. And that's very boring chronologically because you have a lot of adventure and then you have a lot of... um, you know, sort of older men sitting around a table. And, you know, there's no balance in that. Um, So I needed the reader to have come along with me to understand. You know, I didn't know why I was so drawn to that village. I just knew that it was a kind of haven. And I was using that time to uh, look back also and really face what had happened to me before in those places And that was the structure for the book that ultimately felt the most true, is, okay, we're framed by, here I am in this village, and it's this place of sort of um, almost eerie security. Um, It doesn't seem like it should be a haven, but the reader is sort of coming along with me and processing this other information and realizing, oh, it is such a relief You know, now I'm beginning to understand why uh, why I'm in this place. Uh, I had an editor describe it as a mystery in that sense, which I thought was um, surprising, but also pretty interesting.
2: It's definitely those threads are definitely there. Like when you're describing uh, time and again how Errol always asks you whether or not you lock the door to the old shop, as if something Mm -hmm. else is going on. Like I well, something else was going on, right?
0: Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, you have, like, so many scary moments throughout the whole book. You know, you get buried in the snow uh, when you're taking a nap. Uh, that
2: is That that was the most
0: terrifying moment of the book, by <laughs> the way. I was in the same boat. Heart um, palpitations. I I've,
1: didn't want my mom to read that scene, even though it happened 10 years ago, and I'm clearly fine.
0: I mean, but, and, and you've also, I mean, you described, like, multiple situations with men that, you know, are just, they made me feel uncomfortable. So I can only imagine, you know, how it felt in the moment. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm so curious. This is such a daunting thing for anyone. Um, why do you do it? Do you just love it?
1: Yeah. I mean, it makes me happy. (laughs) Um, I, I, I love it. I love working with the dogs. Um, you know, until three years ago, I didn't have my own dogs. I only worked with other people's. Um, which is common. There's like a huge apprenticeship tradition in this sport that I don't I don't really see paralleled in anything else right now. Um, and so I was working for other people. I was training their dogs. I, uh, you know, at one point was racing someone's B team. Um, and then I had an opportunity to get my own. And suddenly that, you know, was a really drastic change. It's huge to have You know, especially for a writer who's traveling, um, you know, to go to someone's house for four hours, three days a week to take their dogs out versus to like, oh, shit, suddenly I have 19 huskies on my (laughs) farm. Um, It's a tremendous time commitment. And it's also just uh, it's a commitment to be with animals and be outside and be physical for a certain amount of time every day. Uh, even if you're not running that day, even if it's super hot and the dogs are just napping, um, I really appreciate that I can spend however many hours on my screen and then I have to go outside and chop meat and scoop poop and pet huskies.
0: So I... uh... I mean, that's, I I wish that I I loved anything as much as it seems like you love that. Um, (laughs) So, you know, congratulations on finding something that's that special to you. Uh, I want to back up a little bit and talk about some of your uh, nonfiction writing, um, Mm -hmm. your nonfiction journalism, uh, specifically a piece that you wrote for BuzzFeed uh, titled, Why is the World's Gayest Sport Stuck in the Closet? (laughs) Um, so can you give us you know a synopsis of what that's about and you know what went into it
1: yeah i'm so glad they they let me use that title that's the thing (laughs) about buzzfeed both times i've written for them i've had like a kind of wild title and they're like great
0: (laughs) well so the funny thing is uh, that i've really noticed about buzzfeed is that you know for for the longest time it got um kind of you know pigeonholed as like the clickbait website and everything but Mm -hmm. you know for years now somewhat under the radar up until like very recently, they've been publishing some of the, I'd argue even most of the best journalism on, on the, on the web out there right now.
1: Fantastic long form.
0: It's incredible. So talk to us a little bit about that piece.
1: Yeah. So my friend Sandy called me up and she knows that I used to be a figure skater. And, uh, she said, Hey, like we're at Buzzfeed. We're talking about, uh, you know, maybe doing something about figure skating, it was before the Sochi Olympics. So everyone was, you know, thinking about, um, right, like tremendous violence against uh, gay people in Russia, queer people. And what would that look like? And then figure skating, of course, everyone associates with, um, you know, certainly the male side with gay men. And so she called me up and she was like, hey, like, can you just find a gay skater training for Sochi and just profile him? And, um, I was like, sure, that'll, that'll be fun. That'll be easy. And uh, I started sort of calling up my old contacts, reaching out into the skating world and I couldn't find anyone. I mean, out of the, you know, several dozen skaters who were at that point sort of vying for nationals, um, which was the deciding competition you know, not, not one of them was, um, was out as queer in any way. And that was, I mean, I was like, oh, like I I can't do this story. And, um, you know, and then I realized, and she realized that was the story and the whole, the whole point became this kind of search for why is it so hard? Why do we think it's going to be so easy? And yet it's so hard to find a gay skater, um, who's out at, in the upper levels. Um, you know it almost became like frank sinatra has a cold <laughs> but but about like sexual repression.
0: Well, I, I um, thought it, I thought it was so interesting the way that you handled it because uh you know it went from being a story about uh you know these individuals to being you know the sport itself kind of became a character in in the story. Um you know mm-hmm. here's here's why it's not as popular as it used to be or here's my opinion as to why uh here's what's happening and um, I thought it was super interesting the way that you approached it, uh, you know, kind of in, in a narrative nonfiction way, which I assume mm-hmm. came out of your tenure at Iowa. Um so I guess uh can you talk to us a little bit about the process of what it was actually like putting this story together?
1: Sure. I ended up I ended up going to the national championships and really framing the story around that and I was just like, I'm gonna you know, I Sort of like I could put my hair up in a bun and like sort of pass for a skater. I did all these things wrong because it was my first journalism piece. Um, And so I like ended up accidentally staying where the skaters were staying. And then instead of taking the press bus to the competition, I like pretended to be a Russian skater and just like (laughs) got onto the skaters bus (laughs) and like had therefore 45 minutes to talk to them every morning. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, like I could not do that um, because I couldn't plead ignorance. But at the time it worked great for me. And uh, so I just sort of spent the week just sort of skulking around nationals. Um, And, uh, you know, there was this, this one woman who's a skating blogger who was there really took me under her wing and was like, I'm going to introduce you to people. And I, I didn't tell anyone what the angle of my story was because I was afraid I'd get kicked out of the competition. Um, but as the week went on, as I had more and more material, I felt more comfortable talking about it openly. Um, and uh, you know, and then several people reached out to me after that and wanted to talk to me anonymously. So it it just sort of grew, and then I structured the piece itself around around that competition.
0: Now, how was the piece received? Was there a lot of response?
1: I, well, yeah.
0: I, I'm, um, I'm curious if it, if it changed the debate within the skating world.
1: I think people in the skating world largely liked it. Um, I am not super tuned into that world, so I don't know what sort of insidery conversations might have been had. But what was funny was like, I think it was the same exact day newsweek came out with the same long form story (laughs) um except for it was called like why is skating homophobic and it was like the same exact people giving quotes um it was just so funny i was like oh like this is how media works like buzzfeed is like this is going to be a thing and they reached out to me and i'm like part of this machine but like you know they're not working alone and like if it had been a day later it would have seemed like i was copying newsweek and Mm -hmm. um you know, so that was, that was really interesting. Um, but people mostly liked it. I mean, I know I had one skater who I talked to who, uh, you know, the coded word for – the coded term is artistic, right, in, in male skating, athletic versus artistic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, whereas athletic means seems straight, artistic means seems gay. Um, In female or in ladies skating it's the opposite. Athletic means like okay something weirdly gendered is going on you're not like a perfect Barbie Um, and artistic means you are a
0: perfect Barbie.
1: (laughs) Like they're super coded words that everyone knows what they mean inside the sport and so I had this skater I talked to who was described as artistic and he was the sort of artistic example and I was very you know, I don't know his sexual orientation. I don't know if he's out. He was uh, a young skater, a junior skater. Um, and I was really worried about uh, if he would feel comfortable with the piece. And, um, you know, I, I think he did. I think he felt really good about it. So, so that was the most important thing to me. I think every story, I have a couple people who are my, you know, canaries in the coal mine. And I really care about their take. Um, and then the rest of the world sort of doesn't matter as much by comparison.
0: This is actually the perfect segue to uh, something I've been wanting to ask you about. Um, you had an interview in The Rumpus uh, where <laughs> they asked you a question that just fits so well into this, into the theme of, of our podcast that I want to ask you again. Um, you know, I'm, 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 you know, pulling this directly from The Rumpus interview And I have your response here, but, um, you
1: know, (laughs) I'm sure I don't remember what I said. No, no, no. I'm,
0: I'm, you know, that matters less than kind of the idea here. Um, but they asked you, um, about your book. Uh, it's about love and it's also about being afraid. You face a lot of fears in the book. And I wondered if one of those fears was actually writing some of this down. I saw your tweet about feeling apprehensive to show your parents the book. What would you tell writers who are having trouble writing about their experiences, either because of self-centering or because they're afraid of how other people will respond? And I, I bring that up because that's kind of exactly why Kyle and I started this show and why we had so much trouble, you know, writing our own pieces in the past is because, you know, so many writers are so worried about uh, how their words will be perceived and and frankly about, you know, how the subjects will uh, respond to what they uh, what's written about them. Um so mm-hmm. it, you know your response now it doesn't really matter if it matches or not with the one that you gave to the rumpus but I'm just curious about your opinion and then afterwards I'd love to talk to you about you know one story that you have always struggled to tell and you know how mm-hmm. that came about
1: Yeah yeah I so for the book I was really worried about my parents and the shopkeeper those were the people whose opinions I really cared about um and they all you know, gave me a big thumbs up. So that was a huge relief. Um, In terms of writing something hard, I mean, I, I think that I was told in workshops sort of coming up through an academic creative writing environment, um, you know, write about the things that are hard to write about. And actually, even though I'm really happy I wrote this book, I, I'm not sure if I were starting over, if I would do it again, because it was, I mean, any book is tremendously hard to write, but writing about anything related to uh, trauma or personal things that are hard to look at or family is just so tremendously psychically hard. Um, And it took such a toll on my health to write this book that I don't know if I would... uh, tell anyone it's a good idea. I mean, I don't, I certainly wouldn't begrudge anyone who didn't want to tell a tough story. And, uh, you know, it's a common conversation that I've had before that I'm having now. People say, Hey, I'm working on this story. It's really hard. I'm trying to figure out how to do it. I'm trying to figure out if I should do it. And I think my advice would change. And before I I would just take it for granted, like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you can do it. You'll be fine. You can totally do it. Um, and now I now I think I'd say, hey, you can do it, but I don't know if it's a good idea.
0: Interesting. Because, I mean, I, I think that one of the ideas that we hear a lot on this show is that it's so important to get your message out there. Um, but I will say that... Uh, Something we often gloss over is is kind of how it affects you, um, and and you know the writer of these uh, particular stories, um, because more often than not, they are stories that are uh, you know traumatizing or or really affect the writer, um, and you know the su- it affects the subjects sure. as well. But um, you know, I guess, it, do you want to give us an example of something that um, you know you may have struggled with before?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. As it relates to this book, I spent more than a year waking up multiple times a night with terrible nightmares. Um, You know, just waking up screaming multiple times a night for a year solid um, while I was writing this book. Very much related to writing this book. Never happened to me before. Hasn't happened to me since. Uh, Took a big toll on... You know, on me, obviously on my partner who shares a bed with me. Um, so that's an example. I mean, is that worth it? I don't know. It's over now. That's nice. Um, I'm glad to have the book now in my hands. I, I believe in it. I want it to have readers. Uh, it means a lot to me when when people respond to it. But, you know, how, how can – like what would – You know, those are things that we can't calculate. Like, what amount of money would you take to get terrible nightmares every night for a year? (laughs) Like, Uh, and then how does that relate to career? Like, how do you separate artistic expression from me wanting to be able to afford to live in a farm on the Northwoods where I basically can't have a day job uh, and also feed 19 Huskies, you know, high quality food that costs you know, easily $30 a day and like, is the vast majority of my income. Like how, I don't know, like all these things are so woven together between, you know, making a living and making art and, um, wanting to do the right thing in terms of being a feminist or being a, you know, a human being. And, um, I don't know. I can't, I can't pull all those motivations apart.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't think there is an answer. Um, and you know, it's something that we see time and again, and, and I'm so happy that, that there are people like you out there who are willing to, you know, go through that process because it provides us with, um, you know, really a way to, to look at, um, these stories and and kind of see it reflected in ourselves. Uh, so thank you for doing that. I mean,
1: my, thank (laughs) you. Uh, Uh, I mean, uh, other people's work has meant a lot to me. Mac McClellan's irritable hearts, uh, was a book I read when it came out and I, I love it and really helped me figure some things out about myself. Um, my favorite responses from the book, because it's very much like, you know, in my sort of self hating moments, I'd be like, Oh, this is just a book about me, like having uncomfortable conversations with men. Um, and the responses that have meant the most to me have been from male readers. Uh, a lot of women have read it and have had, you know, they say, "Oh, like your experiences on the glacier. I just like my experiences in the workplace." Or just like, you know, we're so familiar with harassment and uh, microaggressions and just the way that the world works differently from a female perspective. Um, that I think that for me, reading about other people's experience with that kind of thing is validating in as much as it validates my own experience. It's like having a witness. Um, But women know this and I've had a number of male readers who have come to me and said, Oh, this is, you know, I felt like for a moment I could understand what it's like to sort of go through the world in a female body or uh, reading your book, was the first time I was able to understand my wife's experience. Um, things like that. I mean, people say I want to give this to my teenage girl. I really want people to give it to their teenage boys. Um, that's been a sort of unexpected but really rewarding audience.
0: I think that uh, you know, in an ideal world, I, I think it, I, I don't remember where you said this, but you had an interview where you, you mentioned that. Uh, you wanted this to be required reading for for teenage boys. Um,
1: I think the interviewer said that. The, maybe me. the
0: interviewer, uh, you know, wh- whatever, wh- whoever said it was spot on, and I hadn't really thought about it that way prior to, to reading that. Um, so, you know, hey, you've you've made the the argument, you've made your case to this guy. Um, <laughs> so on this show, we we uh, you know ask each of our guests to come with the story that, you know, they have, have really struggled to tell in the past. Um, and I know that you have come prepared to talk about, uh, one of them. Um, so I will leave you to it.
1: Yeah. So the, the story that comes to mind as really having trouble writing and resenting writing and putting off writing, uh, is a story that came out in Buzzfeed a couple weeks ago called what it's like to have a trans partner. Um, although I think they changed the title to what I've learned from having a trans partner. I don't know why, but I, they're fairly interchangeable. Um, and that was something that my publisher asked me to write actually, because they were reaching out to Buzzfeed books. Um, and they were saying, Hey, like maybe you could write an essay that could appear around the same time as the book. It would promote the book. And I wanted to write about women in wilderness or something related to that, like fear in wilderness. And uh, I was complaining to my transgender partner about being cornered into writing something about having a trans partner, which, you know, I've certainly considered writing about before. Um, And he was all for it. He was like, oh my gosh, like don't write about women in wilderness. That's like... Everyone knows you can write about that. Write about something totally different. Um, you know, one of us should benefit from me having a lousy trans life. <laughs> um, you know, not a lousy life, but difficulties. And um, so without his encouragement, I wouldn't have done it. But it, there's sort of a genre of trans partner essays. And it tends to be like straight cisgender, you know, non-trans women who fall in love with trans men. I've seen, like, a number of these essays around and sort of, like, wonder what it means about them. Like, does it mean their sexuality is different? Like, does it mean, you know, how are they going to tell their families? Um, you know, and all all of this is valid, of course, but when it when there's one after another, it's like, okay... Uh, the trans person becomes a tool for the non-trans person to like think about themselves. And I really didn't you know not that I, I don't want to call out a specific writer, but I'm gonna, there was an essay that came out called, yes, I dated a trans person in college. Why do you ask? Um, which was not satire. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it just sort of this idea that it was, I felt like I've had this story like any media outlet or a lot of media outlets would like want that story from me and that made me very resistant to it. Like they want that story more than they want my partner's story. Um, it's almost like Orange is the New Black, right? Where Piper's like white girl who goes into prison and then like through her, you get to see the other inmates who are less, relatable to like a white middle-class audience um, but they're sort of the interesting part of the story that's how I felt about writing this essay like a personal essay about my partner's body and I got very riled up and I didn't want to write it but then I did because I thought it would promote the book which was my goal and I just ended up writing this really angry draft um, like just angry angry at the reader Just like the whole essay was like, I hate you for making me write this essay, which isn't a sympathetic essay to read if you're the reader. Um, And I called my friend, I called my friend Helen Boyd, who is like, she's written the book about trans partners. I mean, her, her books came out like a decade ago. They were way ahead of their time. They're so smart. She's as cynical as anyone you could possibly think of. And I was, I was so excited because I was like, I'm going to, you know, bitch to Helen, and Helen is going to have my back and be cynical with me. And so I, I wrote to her, and, um, you know, the problem with cynical people is just when you need them to be cynical, they turn nice um, <laughs> and wise. And she was like, it's not the reader's fault. <laughs> Don't get mad at the reader. And I was so then I was pissed at her. I was like, okay, come on. If like you of all people aren't going to be angry with me and write this angry piece. Um, and so I ended up, uh, you know, what I wanted to do was I wanted to write an essay that would explain how I fell in love with my partner in a way that made him a very, very complete person. I wanted to be a, I wanted it to be way more about him than about me. Um, I wanted him to be as surprising and uh, bizarre and compelling in the essay as he is in real life. Um, I wanted the reader to finish the essay by being... I wanted to sort of trick the reader into being as frustrated as I was without telling them that from the beginning. And... uh, that was a huge challenge to write. I, I ended up just writing these sort of love scenes or moments from our relationship um that then couldn't be cynical because they're they're love stories and I'm engaged and like ugh, it's like writing about puppies. And you know, then sort of piecing these together into an essay that was like half angry and half bitter and half in love. Um And so I ended up shaping the story in part about, so my fiance Quince is, he was a cowboy for a while. The house I'm in, he like built out of logs that he dragged out of the forest with draft horses. Like he has a really interesting life. He's also a writer. Um, And his horse was stolen when we were at Iowa together, which is where I met him. And he didn't want to report his stolen horse to the police, which at the time seemed ridiculous to me. Um, And now I've come to understand as part of his wariness about institutions, which I think is very tightly connected to his trans history. Um, And he ended up, we found the horse thieves on Facebook. We found the picture of the horse on Facebook. Uh, He ended up driving to Oklahoma while I was in Norway reporting my book Uh, without telling me confronting the horse thieves being held up at rifle point for like half an hour while he was on his horse trying to ride away um you know this very sort of old west story and I, I kind of loved that aspect I was like oh I can turn this into like a western but it's also about like a queer writer and names and rural living. And, um, you know, for me being someone who's always been straight and still considers myself, you know, largely straight and yet sort of being in this relationship where suddenly I am more queer than I've ever been in my life and he is more straight than he's ever been in his life and dealing with people's responses around that. And all that complexity. And it was like, okay, how am I going to do this? And I ended up just like clipping all the pieces apart and spreading them out on the ground and doing this sort of collage-y piece um, with a lot of small sections because it was the only way I could conceive of to possibly fit all the pieces together.
0: So I actually didn't know that you were going to talk about this uh, this piece on the podcast and you know, this is the this piece is the reason that I reached out to you to be a guest in the first place because um I had read this uh without honestly even looking at who wrote it until after I finished it and it mm-hmm. blew me away and hearing you explain it now you know adds this entire new layer to it that um mm-hmm. makes it that much more important, I think. Um you know, this whole idea of you know, you not needing to explain yourself and, uh, in, in, you know, being cynical or upset with uh, the people who are asking you to do so. Um, you know, it kind of uh, puts like a whole new set of emotions in there that, that I'm not really sure. And, and it sounds like it's on purpose, really came through in the piece. Um, that said, I really loved so many different aspects of this piece because it was so clear that, you know, you're so in love. And, uh, you know, the way that you end the story is just kind of, you know, leaving it, leaving it hanging and saying, you know, you hope that one day you won't have to explain it. Um, And then, you know, there are so many scenes that are so beautiful in the piece. Um, You know, uh, when you first name uh, your fiance and say, you know, you really wish that you didn't have to do that. Or when, uh, you know, he proposes to you. Um, Anyway, I'm I'm rambling at this point, but it's such Mm -hmm. a beautiful piece and we're going to link to it. Thank you in uh in the newsletter and you know in the show notes and everything and um and you did something really unique after you wrote this piece uh and you wrote on twitter um if you like this uh, you either said retweet and i will provide another trans writer or or send me your the trans writers that you're reading um
1: yeah yeah i wanted to i mean the piece got a lot of attention um which was exciting to me <laughs> and it was it, my fiance hadn't even read it quince didn't even read it he was on a glacier in alaska wow. and he knew it was sort of happening but he was like ah it's gonna stress me out to read it just do whatever <laughs> and um
0: that's love that he trusts you so, trust you that <laughs> he could much. do the
1: same for me i i mean yeah we trust each other's writing a lot mm-hmm. i think um But he came off the glacier and he called me and he was like, wow, like this, you know, was very moving to him, which of course, uh, it's funny. I always have a piece that I, I was saying, I always have someone I care a lot what they think of the piece, (laughs) but I don't think he was that for that piece. Um, because everything I I was saying felt so given and obvious within the context of our relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, the part I was most worried about was bringing up the horse because that's very painful for him. Uh, And he feels, he feels it as a personal failure, Um, which I don't see it that way. I don't think readers see it that way. But uh, for him, that was like airing a kind of public shame. Uh, But people really responded to it in a way that uh, was lovely. And you know, so many people were like, we're we're praying for you guys or we're like sending good thoughts. And, um, you know, we've actually been doing, we've both been having like a very peaceful spell for the past few weeks. And we were kind of like, maybe everyone's prayers worked. It's like all these things in our lives are peaceful after a summer of chaos. Um, but, you know, I wanted to part of my ambivalence about writing the piece was having another piece out there talking about trans stuff that wasn't written by a trans person. So I, you know, I was just using Twitter. People were interested in the piece and I wanted to take it as an opportunity to share work by trans writers.
0: I mean, it was amazing. And thank you for doing it. Um, keep doing it. Uh, and, <laughs> you know,
1: Thanks. I, if I could use this moment actually to, to plug a translator, please, I, I recommend Quince, you know, the cowboy in the story has an essay that's amazing called cowboy for Christ that people can read and about his upbringing within a, a very sort of fundamentalist Christian uh, cowboy camp. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Such a thing Uh, exists.
1: It is a thing. It is a thing. (laughs) It's a really good essay. It was also published on Salon, I think, or Slate at one point. They've now taken it down, but it's called Cowboy for Christ, and they republished it and changed the title to I Met My Lesbian Lover at Cowboy Bible Camp, and Then I Had a Sex Change.
0: Man, clickbait. Uh, Which
1: is like the most horrible and fascinating title i've ever Wait, heard
2: is, that it, is, is such it, a serious title change it's, it's that was
1: the whole title i met my lesbian lover at cowboy bible camp and then i had a sex change
0: i'm I'm gonna make sure i get the the proper link from you before we post this episode and I'll no make... they
1: took it down oh so oh, that they is... took it down like last year
0: so where can we where can uh, our listeners read it
1: you can read it on um if you look up cowboy for christ it'll come up it's on killing the buddha okay, okay. which is a religion magazine
0: okay Great. So we'll make sure to link to that one as well. Um, okay. Uh, Blair, thank you so much for joining us. Where can our readers find you online?
1: Uh, they can find me on Twitter and blairbraverman.com. And if they follow me on Twitter, they'll see a lot of Huskies all the time.
0: <laughs> They're everywhere. It's amazing. Uh, They're
1: everywhere. It's just like, I mean, you could follow one of those like emergency Huskies accounts, uh, or you could follow me.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, you provide better context. Uh, So thank you so much. And and we'll be sure to, you know, put all the info to your website and book on the website and everything. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Writers Who Don't Write. That was episode 24 with Blair Braverman. You can find her online at www.blairbraverman.com. Uh, she's on twitter with an excellent snarky handle uh feminist jack london and you can pick up her book welcome to the goddamn ice cube wherever books are sold uh you can find us online at wwwpodcast.com. we have a newsletter at tinyletter.com slash you can find us on twitter facebook instagram soundcloud itunes and wherever else podcasts are sold Uh, as we mentioned in the beginning of the episode we are actually taking a couple months off yet again i'm sorry that we keep doing this to you Uh, we just have some studio issues that we have to deal with but when we get back we are going to if possible have even better guests than the ones that we already have Uh, and in the meantime we have 24 amazing episodes that you should check out you can find them on our itunes or soundcloud page uh, wherever, wherever you choose to listen. Uh, some of my favorite episodes are Thani Nandini Islam, Jessica Pressler, Bajan Steven, Michael Denzel Smith, Lev Grossman, uh, and there are 19 others that are all amazing. I can't really pick. It's like choosing you know my favorite kid. Uh, that said, I love all of them. You should check them all out. Uh, and we want to thank Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library for the music at the top and the bottom of the hour. Uh, you can find him at hollandpattonpubliclibrary.com. And thank you again so much for listening. We will see you all in December or January, and I hope you enjoy the episode.